90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm tired. <laughs> I bet it's been a while since we've recorded together. Actually, <laughs> I would say about a month. Yeah, it has been. That's really weird. Um, it's probably the longest. Uh, yeah, we haven't talked to each other in two years. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> so it it was very strange having some episodes pre-recorded. And then, of course, last week, really mixing things up and doing some mashups of podcasts and intro music and hosts and guests. I, and I know. <laughs> um, that was wonderful and super weird for me because, you know, I mean, I listen to the show just to make sure, but I do it on a level where, you know, I'm critiquing myself and whatever. And it was really weird to listen last week and not have been there. Mm-hmm. But I do appreciate yeah. that um, ice as a mineral was the very first thing brought up. And so keeping the streak <laughs> alive. <laughs> yes. And as far as I know, uh, Sridhar had no idea that that has been That's... a running joke on our show I for know. a year. <laughs> I had to pause. I was laughing so hard because I was like, yes, I don't think he did this on purpose, but it was fantastic. <laughs> yes. And so there have been lots of emails coming in congratulating you so i want to say on the air congratulations and thank you yes and thanks for everyone for all their congratulations i'm sorry i haven't gotten to those emails as we know i'm quite the luddite anyway but um it's been a little busy it's been a while since i've had a baby in the house so uh yeah it's hard to get back into the swing of things <laughs> i would imagine so <laughs> oh i'm sure you will and i'll make fun of you one day when you're like oh god <laughs> Uh, I think you mean that one day when you have to edit the show because I'm out for a month. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I should probably start practicing that right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was wonderful. And I think, like I said, thanks, everybody, for all your well wishes and everything went well. And so now we have a little girl to go along with our son, who's also super excited about it. So, um, yeah. Well, I know that we're all glad to have you back. Yay. And, you know, we're in the summer now, so we're going to be transitioning over to summer shorts, which we tried last summer, and they weren't very short. Uh, <laughs> I know. And because we haven't talked in so long, we're going to have to really, really rein ourselves in, I think. Yes. But there have been... Lots of things going on. Before we go any further, I want to give a big shout out to Chris and Alicia from Embedded.fm for helping host last week's show, obviously. Uh, yes, it was excellent. And you should go check out, uh, they just had their 200th show a few shows ago. So they had a celebratory episode. So congratulations <laughs> to them as well on 200 shows. We still have a ways to go for that. Um it's, it's closer than you think, John. Um, <laughs> I also want to thank Chris for his enthusiastic yay for Fun Paper Friday last week because I noticed the awful lack of cowbell. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> yes, there there was no cowbell or bear bell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't have anything to ring for you. <laughs> there, there, there won't be this week either since my daughter is sleeping right beside me right now. <laughs> but... <laughs> We'll get back Probably to that. a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, speaking of Fun Paper Friday, we actually had a request by listener Tom on Twitter a while back. And he said, I'm searching for this fun paper. It was about this roughly. Do you know what it is or do you have a list of all the fun papers you've done? And my first reaction was, well, we have a search box. And then I realized that 
the search box works if you know some of the words in the right. title. Exactly. But if you're like, it was about this, it doesn't really do it. <laughs> so I went through last week and made a Fun Paper Friday page on the website. If you go to don'tpanicgeocast.com at the top, there's an FPF tab. If you click on that, you can see a table with links to every single Fun Paper we've ever done. Uh, this is a very impressive compendium that I'm sure would have taken me weeks to do, and you probably like scripted it up in a few seconds, right? Um, well, I scripted part of it. <laughs> so, of course you did. <laughs> the, the generation of the table was done with a little Python script. Unfortunately, uh, the way our content management system works, the page numbers are generated in what appears to be a pseudo-random sequence. <laughs> And so short of hitting the server with every number between like one and a thousand and seeing what returns 404s and what returns 200s, ah. it just wasn't worth it. So I spent about an hour doing it. Oh, uh, nice. But, you know, looking at it, that's a lot of pages God, of paper that we've read. <laughs> this is probably more than I've actually read for my scientific research. That's, that's where I'm going to go with this. <laughs> I was like, that's impressive. Like, this is a master's thesis bibliography right here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's good. So, <laughs> so yeah, there was that. And uh, let's see, we've been having some storms coming through here, you know, afternoon pop-up thunderstorms. I'm sure you all probably have, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we've gotten, we've gotten a lot of rain. We're actually supposed to get some tonight, too. Um, so that's, that is quite exciting for us. Um, we've missed out on a lot of them. But I will say that the day that our daughter was born was a huge tornado outbreak day. So that was really exciting, being stuck in a hospital having a baby during a tornado outbreak. I would imagine. Yes. Uh. <laughs> um, by the end of the day, though, we did have nurses coming in and were showing us pictures and asking what kind of clouds these were. So I, I educated people about mammatus clouds on numerous occasions. <laughs> it was pretty great. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I did an experiment this week and I actually had really great results. So I wanted to tell people they should try this. Uh, I just took my iPad. You could do this with your iPhone or any phone that has a time-lapse functionality. Mm-hmm. I set my iPad out on our deck, pointed it towards the area where there were thunderstorms off to our north brewing, and just had it make a time-lapse video over about half an hour or an hour or so. And I posted some of these on Twitter. But you actually very clearly see the updraft you know forming then raining itself out then trying again you can see when you speed up the atmosphere really you see the fluid dynamics very obviously that's Uh, so awesome and you know having it where you just have to take your phone out of your pocket set it on time lapse and tape it up to the window for half an hour it's an experiment worth doing um you know We've seen a lot of these, um, especially in um, when I've co-taught with meteorologists. They'll show these time-lapse videos, and they really do shoot, show how the atmosphere, you know, air acts as a fluid. And I don't think you quite get it until you do something like this. Yes. Or you and, sit around and you watch know, them all day. You could do that, too. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, you can go look at them on YouTube, but there's something about... You know, before it was harder to do. Now that pretty much any device can do it with the oh, right piece of software. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. Much, much so, more accessible. Uh, oh, absolutely. I'm thinking, you know, next time people are out at field camp, they need to set up some time-lapse cameras. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've definitely had that suggested before. Um, we'll, we'll get that done next year. That's an excellent point. And an excuse for me to, you know, buy a new camera. <laughs> hey there you go anytime you can get new gear exactly (laughs) i think i'm going to actually be purchasing a drone too but we can talk about that on a whole nother uh, oh yes we we have to i figured so so as you can probably tell this episode is going to be a catch-up episode (laughs) because we have not talked in a long time and the listeners have been sending us a lot of email in fact I am sorry to say that Tim sent me a message in Slack and said, your email inbox is bouncing <laughs> because it's full. That's impressive. <laughs> so That's I'm sorry impressive. if you tried to send in any feedback in the last week or so. Apparently our inbox was bouncing. I've gone through, I've deleted everything that had attachments, moved it to an on-disk archive. If you try to send us feedback and still have problems, let us know through Slack or on Twitter, and even if your email works, you should still hop on Slack because there's been a lot of conversation going on, including uh, tracking of the flight path of a fly. Oh, wow. <laughs> so That sounds like what Slack was made for, really. <laughs> so Jarmo said that he was watching a fly fly around. <laughs> it looked like it flew in straight segments and then turned very abruptly instead of flying on any kind of curved path. So he actually uh, took some video with his iPhone and then using the power of Python and some image processing ended up with graphs, which are in our Slack uh, chat room that show the flight speed and the speed of angular change and their correlation from this video. And we had a very long discussion about this. Uh, It was actually fascinating. I leave you guys alone for three weeks. And this is what happens. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, that's amazing. That is quite amazing. <laughs> so there you go. That's uh, somebody that had an idea, used Python, and in an afternoon had worked up something that uh, could easily be mistaken for publication graphics. I was gonna, And that sounds like a fun paper Friday right there, I'm going to say. You know, it really does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so. <laughs> so if Drama would write that up, we'll absolutely um, have it on. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh. So, but we've had a lot of other feedback. So I put it all in one big Google Doc, and I thought we would just go through it and let you all know what other listeners of the podcast are thinking and talking to us about and are interested in. Uh, yeah, and it's really cool to see who these people are too, um, which is addressed actually in one of our one of our um, pieces of feedback too. But the first one is from Jonathan, and it says, uh, "Dear Shannon and John, I'm an astronomy grad student studying exoplanets, and I really enjoy the podcast, even though my brand of planets are so big they don't even have solid surfaces." <laughs> I'm trying to learn more about solar system planets and their relation to exoplanets. And without a geophysics background, your show really helps prime me for understanding research papers. Um, That's awesome. That is the whole point of our stuff. And obviously, we definitely are both pretty big space fanatics as well, um, as you'll know through our interactions with the orbital mechanics a lot. So um, that's great, Jonathan. And hopefully, um, if you have anything specific you'd like to know, we would be happy to do that. And we should probably talk about exoplanets at one time, too. You know, when Jonathan and I were emailing back and forth, I said, 
I don't really know much about exoplanets. I know very little about planetary geology. But if we ever have a question, I know who we're coming to yes. now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what you get for writing in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this whole idea of studying planets that are so far away, very big, you don't have solid surfaces, but we still have the instrumentation to be able to measure things about them and infer things about their atmospheric composition, about how they're made. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it really is. And there's been a whole lot of excitement over, you know, newfound exoplanets all the time. So it's definitely something that we should visit. Oh, yes. And <laughs> uh, let's see. So we had a- another piece of feedback from Cash and... Cash sent us an interesting YouTube video, <laughs> and he said, I don't know enough to speak about this theory intelligently, but I would think there are more likely explanations. And uh, I will link the video in. It is a group uh, called Electric Universe <laughs> Awesome. that has an idea about sunspot activity changing the rotation rate of the earth and causing the earth to in their words literally rip itself apart and that's why we have so many sinkholes that's very interesting it's yes Um. and some of the data it's it's a great example and something we should do a show on sometime of how you have to watch how data is used because this is a textbook example of data manipulation. Uh-huh. Yeah. A lot of times we say, you know, correlation does not equal causation, right? But this one is, yeah, more manipulative than that. Yes, and there are even some... <laughs> the, the video has no voiceover. It's just text running along the bottom. But it's all these videos of, you know, cars falling into sinkholes, sinkholes doing damage and whatnot, and uh, with some very Sarah McLaughlin-style music... <laughs> playing over it's it's a very bizarre video it's 13 minutes long i would suggest watching a few minutes of it and then waiting for our show where we talk about data manipulation and pseudoscience (laughs) yeah i'm sure there's a lot more examples than just this sinkhole thing where we can talk about this for sure yes and he's he even said you know i think there are more likely explanations like mineral resource extraction water extraction oil gas coal etc possibly fracking just natural activity as well and sinkholes don't go down to the core or anything, so it's not the earth ripping itself apart. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there because I made the mistake of reading the comments on this video. It was a bad idea. It's always a bad idea to read YouTube comments. Uh. <laughs> uh, it was super painful. <laughs> so speaking of, you know, the earth in general being torn apart, um, <laughs> we have another uh, email from Lucas. And he is talking about, he actually has a question about the interior of the Earth. And he said, I just recently listened to episode 118 on the structure of the Earth. And in his physics class, this question occurred to him. And he's asking if the liquid bits inside the Earth are affected by tidal forces. And if so, how did these effects manifest themselves? And is it something that is regularly measured? Um, I thought this was really interesting because there's been a lot of new... um, new data come out about the tidal effects of the inside of other planets moons and what this does to their liquid bits on the inside so it absolutely does is affected by tidal forces and in very interesting ways yes and we also talked a little bit way back about the solid earth tide 
when we talked about right. just regular ocean tides, which is, you know, there are places on the earth, everywhere it goes up and down some every day with the tide. Uh, at a maximum, we're talking many feet in some places. So the idea is if you plant a GPS station and measure its vertical position over time, you will see it move up and down with the solid earth tide. And what most geodesists do is they filter that out. They say, we know how tide works. We have a good model of it. We pull that out because we're not interested in the solid earth tide. We're interested in some tectonic thing or some other question. But the signal is absolutely there. And there's even tidal interaction between us and the moon and tidal locking. Right. And I mean, that's the moon is we always see the same side of the moon because it's tidally locked to us, despite the fact that it's tidally locked a little bit less every year because it's going away. But still. Exactly. So (laughs) there's a lot going on. I think it might be worth revisiting tides with a geodetic perspective this time uh, instead of an ocean perspective. Yes, yes, I absolutely think so. Um, I remember reading, I don't know if this was last year or something, but we talked about, you know, those solid earth tides and also in the moon, they think that a lot of the heat in the moon is still there because of the tidal locking to earth. And I think that's a really interesting thing that maybe we should also visit a little bit more. So some of these... Um, moons of planets could actually there's still liquid on the inside because of tidal forces oh yes so it's <laughs> it's quite a big deal when you're dealing with small moons that are very close to large massive gas giants uh the tidal the solid earth tide is much more significant right <laughs> than yes. it is here yes yes exactly um and so lucas also said that he is a high school student in australia so way to go for thinking about these complicated problems in such a way and asking these questions. That's just awesome. And we're really glad that he found the show. He specifically mentioned that uh, he enjoyed the meteorological podcasts and hoped to hear more on some meteorological phenomena, which we can definitely do. Yes, absolutely. And uh, (laughs) thank you for your signature, Lucas. Uh, He signed it, (laughs) not your parents, Lucas. (laughs) So we'll add that when um, we're talking about our five listeners. It's uh, both of our parents and Lucas. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh. The, uh, The next piece of feedback we got was from listener Steve, and he sent this article from a newspaper that says, Key to Rock Falls, it's changes in heat. And this was talking to a USGS scientist, Brian Collins, and talking about how heating and cooling, this diurnal cycle, can cause rocks to break up and eventually cause rock falls. So the article says, in the heat of a summer afternoon, researchers found an unstable slab in Yosemite bulges and moves off a cliff about eight millimeters, which is significant. Yes, um, and then when it cools down at night, the slab reverses itself. So that's a lot of movement in one day, uh, shifting back about seven millimeters. So seven, 17 millimeters of movement in one day on a rock face? Right. I mean, net of one. Yeah. But that was what his question was. And this is where I said, I think we might have to actually get in touch with Brian to figure out, because there was some mistranslation in getting his research into a newspaper article. Because it says it expands eight millimeters, contracts about seven, and it says that means it moves one millimeter a year. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. So are those totally separate facts, or is there a time misprint here uh, somewhere? Oh, <laughs> because yes. because the rock can't move one millimeter what? a day. That would be insane. Right. One. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be that's got to be some kind something wrong with that. Yeah, and he asked, you know, what I thought the answer was, and I said, well, I actually don't know. One millimeter a year seems like a reasonable amount of movement, yeah. but I'm confused by the non-zero movement every day. Right, no, yeah, I agree, because if you're moving a slab, a face of rock 17 millimeters a day, it's it's going to fall a lot more frequently than rock falls happen. Well, I mean, so a net movement of one millimeter a day for a year so it's 365 millimeters. That's like nine feet plus. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's what I mean. There's no way that that's, yeah. that that's the way it's going. Um, but this is certainly a thing. Um, I know I've talked to a lot of people that work out in Utah, and they'll camp when they're working out there, and they have to camp very far away from the walls because they talk about at night. That's all you can hear. Which, you know, if you're working during the day, maybe you just don't pay attention as much, but you can hear all these rock falls at night. So there's definite significant movement due to those diurnal changes. Yes. And, I mean, the coefficient of expansion for rock is not small. So... Yes. That's... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's an interesting article, and we've had a fun paper in the past looking at rock fall events from a seismic and infrasound perspective. Right. And they're actually, they talk a little bit about exfoliation too, which I think is kind of a, it's not exactly, we've talked about exfoliation in terms of igneous rocks before um, as well. But (laughs) I did like that in this newspaper article, they say the process called exfoliation is catastrophic if a boulder lands on your head. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes it is. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of that YouTube video that we linked in when we talked about exfoliation. Right, exactly. Of, yeah. That I, yeah. I I I play that video every year in class now. I think it's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So the the next piece of feedback we got is right up your alley. Uh, I got really excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't read the paper yet, but I'm super excited too. Um because I obviously haven't checked my email in a while. Um, but so listener Mike Wallace sent in a paper on magnetic signature of lightning strikes in weapons survey area. And so it's a lightning-induced remnant magnetism paper, right? This is super great. <laughs> right. And it, so it's by it's lightning-induced remnant magnetic anomalies in low-altitude aeromagnetic data by Beard et al. And when they say low-altitude, they mean, like, the helicopter that had the gradiometer on it was maybe one or two meters off the ground. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so it's very low altitude. And what they were looking for was unexploded ordnance. Mm-hmm. Right. And magnetics is a great way to do that. But they saw these weird patterns that didn't look like unexploded ordnance. And they had this very distinctive spider shape to them. And they did some filtering, they messed around with it, and decided that these must be lightning-induced remnant magnetizations, and that we just don't see them because we never take magnetic surveys that are that close to the ground. But when you do it, uh, you see a lot of them, which is what we would expect. Uh, I, that is so cool. That's super cool. And it's super cool that they can see the, um, the discharge sort of pathways 
in that because the you know lightning induced magnetism that i always see is just this point source from a core you know and you could never guess which way the lightning discharges so that's kind of the coolest part about this i think you know we say that there's not much research on lightning induced magnetization and of course somebody <laughs> says well here's one that you missed which was great because yeah. i read this paper cover to cover probably twice Nice. And then skimmed it a third time because there is so much interesting detail in this data set. Oh, that's cool. That's gonna be our that's gonna be a fun paper coming up for sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the the last piece of feedback that we wanted to cover was from listener Tim. The the same Tim that pointed out that our inbox was bouncing. <laughs> and the same and who built us an awesome cowbell. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is, he, he is where the fun paper bell came from. Uh, <laughs> he said that he had a note about our open source show where I started talking about the Pennsylvania Railroad and how they tested everything, you know, gloves, brooms, light bulbs, and they published their results, sort of an early open source consumer reports. Mm-hmm. And... You said, why would they do that? And I didn't have a very good answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It turns out Tim used to work on the railroad. This is awesome. (laughs) Um, This is fabulous because, yeah, well, I mean, it answered our questions. And so he said he conjectures that by publishing all these results um, for the things that they were testing, it allowed the manufacturers to actually see how things were being used and why one worked better than the other and actually fostered some competition, right? And therefore benefiting the railroad because better products are going to be made. Yeah, and that is really a great point because how do manufacturers get feedback? Well, they don't a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, there weren't exactly... Uh, Amazon reviews where the Pennsylvania Railroad <laughs> could go look at, you know, a broom and say, oh, this only got four stars or three stars. Uh, <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, I, I picked on the broom and I said that they even tested brooms. And he said, having worked on the railroad, I can tell you that having a good broom is very important <laughs> because he spent his time as a signal maintainer and was always out fixing things along a 70 mile stretch of track that he was responsible for. There you go. Um, I thought this was cool when I ruminated about this a little bit because, you know, by being, by the Pennsylvania Railroad being the one that puts it out there, I mean, they're going to benefit most from, you know, whatever their review says. And just like you said, in this time where there weren't Amazon reviews, that's that's pretty ingenious, right? Yeah. It's sort of a, we're buying your product, but here's what could be better. Right, yeah. Uh, exactly. Or here's what could make so. us buy more to a competitor. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. It was kind of cool. And w- w- we talked back and forth a little bit about the railroad because the, the railroad's an interesting thing. There's lots of interesting pieces of technology. Everything is so massively big. The physics, the forces that are at play are unreal. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so we talked about, you know, being kind of rail fans and watching some of this stuff. And uh, he said that he has completed his bucket list of his five-year-old self now, which was to drive trucks and to drive trains. <laughs> I love that. That was fabulous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, I was thinking about my son that whole time I was reading about this train, so it was pretty good. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, I know I said that that was our last piece of feedback, 
But as it turns out, we have one more that makes up everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Sorry. No, Yay. No. <laughs> kiddo <laughs> sleeping. The bell is going to be intermittent for the next month or so, I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So this paper came from listener Joe. And he said he thought it might that we might find it interesting, even though it doesn't have geology high-speed cameras or lasers. <laughs> yeah, I was. I assumed you just quit reading after that point. I mean, did you even read it? I, I did, and it actually turned out to be a really interesting paper. So it is fellow use of medical jargon correlates inversely with patient and observer perceptions of professionalism. Results of a rheumatology OSCE, ROSCE, using challenging patient scenarios by Berman et al. Whew. Yeah, that was, a, that was a mouthful. And there are a ton of authors on this paper, which I found very interesting. Yeah. So the, the, the whole premise here is when you go to the doctor and they use a bunch of medical jargon and it sounds like an episode of House MD, <laughs> are you more likely to think they're professional or not? Um, so they've pointed out that there's never been a study linking professionalism with uh, jargon use, and they also throw in um, empathy as well as rated by, so the, they're evaluating medical fellows. Um, 53 of them, in fact, and when I say they're evaluating, uh, the fellows were evaluated by um, fellow MDs as well as patients, too. And, and, well, and these are patient actors. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, which I thought was pretty funny as well. Yeah, it's it, that would be an interesting career discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. <laughs> but it, it sounded like this was sort of a, I'm not going to say exactly a qualifier, but it's something that they have to repeat relatively regularly to make sure that as practicing physicians, they're interacting with their patients in an appropriate way, they have an appropriate level of knowledge, and that they can convey that knowledge. Right. And so, I mean, we frequently have medical, you know, fun papers. Um, I don't know if this is sort of the road not taken for me because I always pick these out too. Um, but having been to the doctor a lot in the last six months, <laughs> um, we've definitely had this discussion. So this paper was very timely because a couple of weeks ago we were just talking about sort of the correlation between um, doctors' sort of bedside manners versus like how how smart they are so this was an interesting paper to come across right after that discussion because a lot of the same things that my doctor talked about were echoed in these results yeah and you know joe said in his email that he thought this was an interesting paper because it's becoming increasingly important for scientists to engage with the public and connect people with their work we have to make our work relevant we have to make it understandable we have to make make it obvious why we're doing this you know studying how many ways there are to tie your shoes doesn't seem like an interesting problem until you start going into combinatorics and all this other not theory stuff that actually has real applications <laughs> but it's uh it's an interesting idea because i was thinking about this paper after i read it and i thought what if when you graduated so you you're out of grad school what if you had to do this every year where as a scientist you had to go around and talk to the public, and you were graded on how much jargon you used and how relatable you were. <laughs> We'd um, be in trouble. 
Right. And I think this is really funny because that draws a correlation to teaching evaluations, which is something that nearly all professors don't want used in the evaluation of their effectiveness, which is very interesting to me because, I mean, you're teaching, right? And so they say that teaching evaluations are very flawed due to all kinds of things. There's an obvious um, uh, bias against female teachers. That's one thing. Um, and then there's all kinds of sort of, you know, well, it's just a, a popularity contest and all this stuff. Um, but, I mean, that's essentially how well can you communicate, you know? That's what I get from my teaching evaluations is do I say things that are clear and obvious or not? And so that's kind of, this kind of mirrors that a little bit. And, um, you know, a lot of professors don't like using them because I think people don't like being told when they're not doing a good job communicating their passion, right? But it's very important, as Joe pointed out. Right. Well, I mean, if you talk, if you walk up to somebody and say, well, looking at this empirical Green's function, it is intuitively obvious to the most casual observer that <laughs> yada, 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 yada. Yes. Like, you're going to lose people <laughs> real quick. This paper does it, but I will, I will come back to that because it's in the, it's in the sort of the, the conclusion part that this paper does that exact thing. But we'll, we'll get to it after we talk a little bit more about what the results are. Okay, yeah, so the, the results. They had the medical evaluators, the patients, and the actual uh, fellow evaluate themselves mm-hmm. on empathy and uh, what was the other? Professionalism, yes. Right. And then they had fields that they could fill in, and they also had write-in answers. And they took the write-in answers and categorized them. So they said, okay, you know, there's this general theme, and we see this when we do workshop feedback, that, okay, well, here's a general theme of uh, all these people worded it differently, but they all thought that thing X needed improved or thing Y needed improved. Mm-hmm. And you can actually break free re- free form answers up into categories pretty easily. That really surprised me, actually, because they said, you know, the free form, there's no prompts or anything like that. So that, that, uh, that surprised me at the... Um the categorization of that was so simple. Oh, I mean, we, but when we teach workshops, we took a page out of the software carpentry book, which we talked to Greg, Greg Wilson about this a while back. And we have red and green sticky notes. And at the end of the day, you write a good thing about the workshop that you liked on the green, a thing that we can do better on the red. And we tell them to be brutal and it's anonymous. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, we have two piles of sticky notes and we will mosey down to the local watering hole get a beer and sit there and go through the sticky notes. And predictably, you can put the sticky notes in three or four piles. No kidding. Yeah. It's not always the same three or four piles uh, because we try to take the negative comments and improve on them for the next time we teach, and hopefully that pile goes away. But themes definitely emerge, which just blows my mind. That is really interesting. I would like to see a, a compendium of that. Um, or maybe I should start instituting this more in my classes. Yeah, I mean, we definitely we have everything recorded. And I think it would be a fun exercise to make you know, like word clouds or phrase clouds. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely like to see that. Maybe, maybe the uh, next time we're hanging out on Slack, we could do that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, uh, but we, we digress. So they... As always. They... <laughs> They, they rated uh, empathy on the Likert scale, 
our our good friend from all medical papers. <laughs> and then they count the number of times they use jargon as either zero, one, or two or more. Uh, which, if you were doing this for scientists, I think that would need to be a log scale. <laughs> yes, no kidding. I was very uh, <laughs> surprised at the one or two. Yeah. <laughs> and so the the empathy, there was some correlation with professionalism. So if you were more empathetic, you were perceived as more professional. But it had pretty much no correlation with the amount of jargon you used, which is strange. Yeah, I thought that too, because I would have thought that a, um, you know, more jargony would seem less empathetic. That's what I would have thought too. If somebody says, you have uh, something that sounds like you would hear on house versus they say, well, there's a problem with this organ and this is what's going on. And then it's called X, Y, Z. But the jargon use versus professionalism curve, there is definitely a correlation. In fact, the perception of both the medical and the patient actors dropped off drastically with any jargon use, and the medical evaluators were actually harder on the fellows than the patient actors. See, and that surprised me too, because I would have thought that that would be the exact opposite. I I would have as well. Because, you know, if you you know what the jargon is and you hear somebody uh, using it, I would think you would say... That person knows what they're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about this again in terms of scientists. Scientists talking to scientists, we use jargon all the time. Maybe MDs talking to MDs use jargon all the time. But it is very clear that it is a cultural difference. In the medical profession, it is important to them that you communicate clearly because it's a matter of life and death for people whereas in the scientific field clear communication is really not emphasized yeah yeah not at all actually <laughs> not at so all. <laughs> it's i think that's a fundamental cultural difference uh-huh. Uh-huh. there's another yeah. cultural difference in here which was uh the of course use of sas for statistics and <laughs> everything done in in a very medically you know, this has a p-value of 0.0004 kind of way. Uh, it was a little hard to pick out some of these correlations on graphs just because with a rating of 0, 1, or 2 on both axes, everything looks kind of blocky and bend. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought that too, um, which is interesting in and of itself. You said that you found some instances of jargon in the paper on jargon. Well, so it was, um, well, it was less that and more the fact that this is the whole scientist being sucky at communicating because they say, while it may not be surprising that empathy and minimization of jargon use would be perceived as the mark of a more professional doctor, the further finding that jargon and empathy are inversely correlated helps to more accurately identify components that warrant assessment when teaching professionalism. I just thought this was really interesting because I thought it was surprising that empathy and jargon usage were not correlated. And they say, you know, that's not surprising. And I think that's sort of one of those things where it's like, well, that's surprising to people that don't do what you do. So maybe you should pay attention, you know. So it it seems, you know, that we just pointed out that that whole empathy and jargon usage thing was a surprising non-correlation. And they're saying, oh, you know, this is not surprising. And it just, to me, that sort of smacks of the whole, like, they don't even understand 
when they're not performing, you know, when they're not communicating clearly. Oh, no, I see what you're I see what you're going for there, that for some reason they find that not surprising and they don't tell us why we find it very surprising. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's the whole like, you know, you don't even, you know, you try to explain your science and you don't even, you can't even dumb it down and you don't understand why no one understands what you're talking about. And I just thought that that sentence was sort of a, a reinforcement of that, um, that sort of concept. And, and it goes back to what Joe's saying. It's more, even more important that we learn how to communicate our science to people that aren't in our science. Right. And that we learn how to communicate it in a, I'm going to say neutral way <laughs> in terms of here is what we do. Here is why we do it. Here's what the data say. Not, you know, I have an agenda of getting yes. funding or I have an agenda of doing this because that's not what's really going on right nor is it a belief system you know this is all data-driven stuff and while we can argue about whether objectivity exists i mean there is a difference between data-driven science and beliefs about science right oh yes so i thought that was a fascinating fun paper joe uh yeah absolutely obviously i love the medical fun papers so keep them coming Yes, and keep the feedback coming because we will do more listener feedback shows. There are a few show topics that have been suggested over the last few months that did not make it into the feedback today because they are entire shows. <laughs> yes, and uh, obviously we love it when you do our work for us, so that's always great too. <laughs> oh, yes. So keep sending in your questions. Keep sending in your feedback. I've been sending out a bunch of stickers. We still have some. So oh, yeah. if you want stickers, act soon, because otherwise <laughs> we're going to have to wait on getting more produced. Uh, that's true. We probably should anyway, you know. And, you know, T-shirts. If anyone's interested in T-shirts, you should let us know if you're interested in buying T-shirts, possibly, right? Yes. So we could set up like a, a Teespring or a tea blaster campaign or something like that. Yeah. That we would sell the shirts. I don't think you make a ton of money on each shirt, a few bucks. Uh but, you know, if we sell enough shirts, that could help go towards the hosting fees, because right now the hosting fees for the show, Shannon and I just cover. Right. So that would be super cool. And plus, I love T-shirts, so that's really the reason. But <laughs> Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if you have any kind of feedback, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, apparently only in Slack, but... <laughs> John assures me our email box is uh, empty-ish now, so email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And uh, we're always surfing Twitter. I'm definitely on in the middle of the night a lot more now, and I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and together we are at don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.